0: This
1: is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we have been watching on the news for the last few days now, the uh, investigation continues and the grieving continues in the light of the uh, Monday deadly van attack, of course, on Yonge Street in Toronto. Joining us to talk about this is Marianne DeMaine, who is a reporter with Global News in Toronto. Marianne, it's uh, so good to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
0: Thank you. Good morning.
1: You know, I was struck as I was watching you report the other day on Global. You're on the morning show with Jeff and, and Carolyn, and... Uh, As you were talking to some of the people that were actually there as this was happening on Monday, it it struck me that I don't think any of them could could get through what they wanted to talk to you about without tearing up and choking up and starting to cry. This, uh, of course, is a very emotional time. It's going to take a long time for the healing.
0: You're absolutely right. Not only the healing and the processing, but especially getting those images out of their minds. These are people who are walking down the street on what was a beautiful day, the first warm day we had had here in the city this spring, so there were more people out and about. And then this happened, horrific images, and then strangers running to the help of people they had never even met before in grave condition. And so the first day that we were here, a day after the attack, people were here looking like they had not slept at all since the day before because they said when they close their eyes, they just cannot shake those horrific images out of their minds. So at this memorial where I am here at Young and Finch, this is the site where the attack first began. That is what people are writing down on the notes here and on the posters, not only thinking about the victims and their families, but also the first responders and the people who were here helping those who were injured. Of course, uh, people have been gathering here, uh, a steady stream really that has not stopped. There was a memorial here last night, hundreds of people attended despite the rain, and then it continues today. One of the signs here says, we stayed with you, you were cared for, you were surrounded by love. That may likely have been and uh, left there by someone who was with somebody waiting for first responders to arrive. There's just so many stories like that here, Bill, that um, it, uh, they're just really heartbreaking. And you can see that with those coming by here, just ranging from quietly wiping away tears to full-on sobbing on their knees.
1: Mary, are you surprised by the size of the crowd? I, 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 you, you know, because I, I, there was a police investigation, of course, but it just seemed that from that moment on, uh, people ha- just had this this need, I guess, this internal need that they had to be there, and, and I'm 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 very very surprised by the numbers that are there day and night.
0: You're absolutely right, and they're even uh, growing now that we're hearing more about who the victims were. A lot of them were workers in this area, and I think that is why so many people are really impacted by this. Not only because it is such a huge tragedy that we've not seen not only in this city but this province before but the fact that it could have easily been one of the people here who are paying respects at the memorial. It was a beautiful day this is a busy area of the city so many people were out on their lunch break so many people have come by here telling me exactly that. It could have been them, it could have been their family members or their co-workers in fact just a few moments ago we had a, a woman that we were talking to with her young son and she was saying the same thing, I walk here all the time with my son and her little boy who looked about five years old was holding a picture that he had drawn it was a rainbow with penguins dancing around under the rainbow and he said he wanted to leave it here because he had hoped it would make the victims laugh so just really the way the community is coming together here and impacting not only you know, the older generation, but also the young people who may not fully understand the magnitude of this tragedy, but just know that they want to be here, too.
1: There's something else that's going on here. As I watched some of the interviews, you were on site, and and Farah, and, of course, Donna Friesen were both there yesterday and did uh, the 530 News and, of course, Global National from the the site. Uh, And as you talk to some of the people, some of the the private citizens that are just showing up, I got the sense, and I wanted to get your read on this. Is there's almost a sense of survivor guilt from some people, as if you know that could have been me, that should have been me. Why was it them instead of me? Uh, sure, it, there's there's a lot of yeah. There's a it, it's a really fascinating to to see how people are trying to wrestle with their conscience, I guess.
0: And especially amongst those who were here yeah. and witnessed it all happening, we spoke with one man yesterday who saw the beginning of the attack. He saw the white van jump the curb and start plowing intentionally into people who were just walking down the street. He said that he tried to chase the van. He was yelling outside his window, honking the horn, trying to let the pedestrians know that something is coming. Of course, at this point, they didn't know whether it was an impaired driver or somebody who was doing this as a deliberate act. But he is recounting what was happening there, thinking, did I do enough? He chased the van for several blocks before the van turned. But then to hear just how deadly it was when it was all said and done, 10 people killed, 14 injured, People still fighting for their lives in hospital. That is what a lot of people are wondering. Uh, you know, could there have been something they could have done more to help those people, or maybe prevent as many people from being struck?
1: There was one individual I know that Farah Nasser was talking to yesterday afternoon, Marianne, uh, that uh, was at the London uh, situation, of course, on the on Westminster Bridge in London about a year and a half or so ago, uh, and and was in that very same situation. He was not at the bridge, but he was in the town, I guess, right in the downtown area. And, and again, was there uh, in Toronto uh, as, as this was happening. Uh, just a bizarre circumstance. And, and again, somebody who shouldn't really talk very well without choking up and crying. They, it, this, is, this is taking an emotional toll on the whole city.
0: It really is. There were even people here from outside of the city. They came in from Peterborough because they just felt this need to come here to this memorial and pay their respects. Sadly, to your point, though, this is something that people are experiencing, not in just one country, one city, but it is becoming... Uh, something we hear more and more about. And when we first heard about this fan attack, I think a lot of people were thinking the same thing. Oh, no, it's finally come here to the city. Of course, the motive of this attack still isn't known. Police haven't commented on that. So there is a picture that's emerging about this suspect uh, who may have been posting some cryptid message uh, on social media just before the attack began, might have been part of a group that shares, some, uh, in some cases, uh, violent and misogynistic ideas. That's all part of the investigation. Of course, police have not confirmed any of that or or commented again on a possible motive, but um, you know, at the time that this was happening, people were very uh, weary to use any words like terror um, and luckily that was not used when it was all said and done, but of course that doesn't change how deadly this incident was and how devastating it is.
1: Marianne, are are police talking at all about the investigation to this point? Uh,
0: There was some insight given into um, what happened the day of the attack. They did say that the van uh, that the suspect allegedly rented was uh, rented outside of the city, just north of the city, and that there was that cryptic message posted onto social media in the moments just before the attack. Um, when you look at that message, it's kind of hard to decipher, but there was reference to an American mass murderer who killed several people in California a few years ago. The motivation behind that attack was a hatred towards women. We know of the 10 people killed in this attack on Young Street on Monday, majority of the victims were also women. So a little bit of a picture is uh, starting to emerge here, though police have not confirmed anything as far as a the motive. Um, they did say though that, that uh, from the time of the first 911 call, it took seven minutes for them to apprehend the suspect. We you know, he had his first court appearance yesterday. He'll appear again next month. His father was also there, of course, media eager to hear from him, but he did not answer any questions or give any insight into his reaction to the fact that his son is now charged in such a serious case.
1: You raised an interesting point that I, I, I think was not lost on an awful lot of people. I mean, this is a terrible, tragic event, obviously. Uh, but the fact that the majority of women, of, of the victims, seem to be female, uh, is, is it makes it even more troubling to wonder if he was actually targeting them as he was racing down the sidewalk.
0: And those who witnessed the attack were saying that it looked very deliberate. The van would go onto the sidewalk, go back onto the street, hit someone on the street, veer back onto the sidewalk. This is when not... This was not a driver who was swerving around recklessly. It was, according to witnesses, very controlled and deliberate. Police also said that, even though they don't know the motive, that this was a very intentional act. Uh, One thing that has a lot of people wondering, you know, could this have been prevented? But we know that the suspect was not on the police radar at all before this happened. Um, To your point, though, and the fact that the majority of the 10 people who were killed were women... You just have to look at the social media posts. We're also hearing Mm -hmm. about um, a group of people called HINCEL, a term most of us have not heard before. That stands for involuntary celibate. Um, And it's been reported that uh, the suspect may have allegedly been part of this group. But again, uh, no confirmation or comment on that at all from Toronto Police.
1: You mentioned about uh, the victims, and I know that we're getting a little bit more information about uh, the names of some of those victims, but uh, the coroner, I know, spoke yesterday, Marianne, and, and was, was quite deliberate in, in a statement suggesting this is going to take some time uh, to make sure there's a positive identification. I guess, obviously, the, the misidentification in the Humboldt tragedy a couple of weeks ago is is a factor in this.
0: Yeah, the coroner's office did say this is not something they want to rush. They want to make sure they do this properly. We know the victims who uh, some pronounced dead at the scene, the rest were taken to hospitals, did have identification on them. In that case, their families were notified, but relying simply on a visual confirmation from family members is not what they're just going on. They want to make sure they do DNA tests, look at medical records as well, so they can be absolutely sure that who they're identifying is really who this person is. We did get some names, but those were confirmed by the family members themselves. Uh, three people so far from Toronto, including uh, the worker who worked Nearby the investment uh, firm I mentioned, as well as at a restaurant, another woman who was just walking around, 80 years old, two other people from South Korea, one from Jordan. The rest of the names will likely come out as the days go on. And when that happens, you can imagine that this memorial will grow even bigger.
1: What about any updates on uh, those who survived? Uh, I I know the last night uh, on, on Global News, you guys reported that uh, I think three of them, uh, Shafar had mentioned, are still in critical condition, some in serious condition. Uh, and there's the, obviously the concern about, about their ta- their safety and, and what the prognosis is going to be for them.
0: Yeah, you're right. And, and we also know that to that point, there could be an additional charge of attempted murder added to the already 13 that the suspect now faces, uh, which would also say uh, something about the injuries that people are recovering from in hospital. You're right. People are remaining in critical condition. The hope is that they will recover and pull through and that the number uh, does not increase beyond 10. But beyond that, uh, the confidentiality of the victims, of course, is top of mind. At the court hearing yesterday, the suspect was told he cannot contact any of his victims. And so that is all really we're hearing about those who remain in hospital with their injuries recovering.
1: Marianne, this is going to be a very busy day in Toronto. I know Yonge Street's reopened again, but notwithstanding the fact there are still many, many people, of course, at the memorial. But uh, there's going to be a big crowd of people down at Maple Leaf Square tonight, and there's always a concern, and I know you've talked about this in some of your reporting, uh, about gathering in crowds and, and about a repeat or copycats or something of this. So As the city and have Toronto Police t- talked to you at all about uh, any precautions they may be taking for that gathering tonight?
0: Well, even with the start of the season of the Jays and also with the Leafs games at the ACC and the Jays games at the Rogers Centre, there were some concrete barricades that were already put in place before this attack happened on Monday. And that was also to make sure that it would be harder for any large vehicles to get into areas where there would be a lot of pedestrians. Uh, the same can be said around the ACC where, you know, depending on what game you're watching, it's the Jurassic Park or Maple Leaf Square. Those measures have been in place before. They've stepped up police presence. They also make changes to uh, traffic rules around them where traffic can't get through um, the main roads in and around those venues during the game. So those were already in place, but now it is even more stepped up now after what this, uh, what, excuse me, what happened here uh, with more people even more aware of just any passing vehicle and what could possibly happen.
1: The mood of the uh, of the crowd that has gathered there and, and continues to be there, and I know that uh, there are some politicians, elected officials, et cetera, that, that have popped by uh to pay their respects but uh, there's there's always it seems a, a somber tone almost a a, a, a quiet uh, that that's there i don't see people talking i see them, there's a lot of uh inward thinking i guess and and just uh, i i guess you know people within themselves uh, just i guess with their own thoughts uh so it's incredible to actually watch as as people put wreaths down uh flowers down or or the number of posters which i guess must be in the hundreds by now
0: Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Posters, post-it notes, little signs, pictures. People still, even with this rain coming down here in the city this morning, are, are still trying to light candles and put them down. It is a very somber place here. It's almost like you're in church. People are here thinking. Uh, some people are praying. And as I mentioned, some people are crying as they just read some of the notes here or these their own. Uh, really, uh, when you look at it and read some of the notes, it is pretty heartbreaking to know that this has happened here in the city. This is often something we see on news feeds from other cities, other yep. countries, and now we're seeing it here in our very own.
1: Well, Donna Friesen mentioned that last night, didn't she, on Global National, that she's used to reporting this stuff, but it's usually in p- some place like Beirut or in in, uh, in Libya and, uh, and not in downtown Toronto. It's a, it's a reality that I guess that we just have to accept and, and say is here now. Uh, thank you so much for this. It's it's a very difficult time for all of us and especially for the folks in Toronto there. Hashtag Toronto Strong uh, is, is obviously still trending, and uh, the, the, the mood and the, I think the support... Uh, that's coming in, not just from uh, Canada, but from around the world, is is, is really overwhelming, isn't it?
0: it? It absolutely is, and to see even the international media here reporting on this, I know for even people coming by here, um, not only shocking to see that it's happened here in the city, but also means a lot to them to get this event out and let people know how much it's impacted the city, but the, uh, the motivation to really bounce back from this as well.
1: Marianne, thanks as always. So good talking with you once again, and uh, we'll stay in touch. You're very welcome. Take care, Marianne Demain, of course, uh, Global News Toronto reporter on the scene at the memorial. Uh, I've heard from people that from all the town, from the Hamilton area, that, that wanted to go there just to, to show their their respect and, and pay their respects and uh, and and share, I guess, in in the bonding that's going on down there now. It's quite a scene, actually. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
1: According to a PC Party spokesperson. Uh, Doug Ford, if he becomes Premier, uh, will support the Ontario Basic Income Project, uh, which is uh, surprising to some people. Uh, Some clarification, maybe. Uh, Mind you, it's an unnamed spokesman, so... uh I'm going to ask Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, about this. Uh, he joins us here in studio. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today.
3: Thanks, Bill. Good to see you on this wet day. Yeah. So. Well, let's
1: talk a little bit about it. I want to talk about the project, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get to that, maybe, let's let's get into this this uh, statement, I guess it were. Uh, you don't know who the spokesperson is. It's not the, the the leader of the party that's saying that. So I don't know if this is policy or,
3: or whatever it is. Uh, can you take this to the bank? <laughs> I'm not sure we'll will be quite that optimistic, but uh, Laurie Montspratton from the Toronto Star did evidently uh, nail down somebody from the party uh, who indicated that they will continue to support the pilot project. And I think that's good news. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think it, I think it depoliticizes uh, basic income. And we have to remember, this is a project uh, that's been committed to for three years by the current provincial government. Uh, there are about a thousand Hamiltonians participating in it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're being fairly courageous, in my opinion. They're, they're kind of pioneers. They are, um, you know, taking a chance on a government program, and it's not always easy to trust government programs. Um, and, uh, you know, they are basically uh, committing to, to uh, be experimented on. Uh, with this pilot project, and we're experimenting with real people in real lives here. Well you
1: told us that when when this was announced and and, and you guys were trying to find people that were going to be involved in this, that it was difficult at first, because a lot of people just said, I don't, I don't think so. Exactly. It sounds like a good idea, but no, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Exactly. And and when it's the government saying it, it's one thing. Well, uh, you know that old line, you know, the worst thing that can happen is the government says, says I'm here to
3: help you. <laughs> that is true, that old axiom. Um, we we thought it might be a good opportunity, though, uh, for individuals who uh, are living in poverty to to get a little bit of extra income. And, and really for the government to test this hypothesis around basic income. And if you're provided with a financial foundation, would it improve your life? Would it improve your housing? Would it improve your uh, health? And so far, the early results of the pilot, um, just anecdotally, from what we've been able to ascertain, have been incredibly powerful. Um, We've seen uh, participants able to purchase their first winter coat uh, for the first time ever. Um, People are eating healthier. Some people are using the uh, basic income to go back to school. Many of the participants, um, and according to the government, maybe two-thirds of them are already working, uh, but they're working part-time jobs, um, maybe maybe earning minimum wage. They're not earning enough at their jobs to escape poverty. So for them, uh, basic income is a supplement, and it's helping them to to lift themselves and their families above the poverty line.
1: You've got to know, and I, I hope the participants understand, uh, that there's there's far more than the, the ramifications, greater ramifications rather than just here in the province of Ontario. I mean, the federal government's watching this. I know it, they talked about the Liberals. I uh, had their convention this past weekend in Halifax, and, and they talked about this very program. Now they're not committed to it. Uh, and it's not part of their policy yet, but the, it was on the docket and people were
3: and saying, let's see what's going on in Ontario. So this matters. It does matter. And there was a important report last week from the Parliamentary Budget Office that uh, um, was requested uh, by Pierre um the Conservative MP. And uh, it, it indicated that uh, a national basic income could cost up to $43 billion dollars. Um, annually and and that's quite a high price tag but until we actually look at the costs of poverty in our society well that's
1: what i mean this is when you take statistics tom and by the way that that 43 billion dollars is a big number but it would also uh, help 7.5 million people which yeah. is also a big number but you know the other question that didn't get asked and, and i don't think mr poliver asked to to, to, to agency to look into this. What's the cost of, of poverty now? What's this costing us? Yeah.
3: And, and we think here in Ontario, it's costing upwards of $30 billion alone, uh, just in, in terms of healthcare costs, in terms of lost opportunities, uh, lost uh, lost potential, um, you know, uh, justice costs as well. And, and so we think um, basic income is in, an important policy to look at and, and this Ontario experiment is going to help determine whether whether it is a worthwhile policy in the future as well.
1: Maybe you want to clarify something because invariably every time we talk about this and you, and you come in here I'll get some people saying, well what's the matter, they, get, they raise the minimum wage, shouldn't that be enough?
3: Yeah well it, it's fine for some people but again uh, many people can't find full-time work and, and so even at $14 an hour uh, it's not enough to, to escape poverty. If you're only getting 15 or 20 hours a week, that's not going to be em- enough. And that's why two-thirds of the basic income participants in this pilot are, are actually working. And so the government is looking at how uh, supplementing their income with, with this financial foundation is, is going to help those families. And, and we know, again, when you are living in poverty, uh, your health is going to be much worse. Uh, people living in poverty three times more likely to get uh, um, uh, diseases, whether it's heart disease or, or other sorts of ailments. Uh, you're, you're more likely to suffer from depression, um, and, and so there's costs not only to the individual but to society as well. And how much are we spending to keep somebody in a hospital room? Um, you know, per day, it's you know much, much, much higher than it would be by providing. Um, a basic income to people. And and so we need to look at the cost-benefit analysis as well. And the other thing we need to remember is when people have extra income and you're living at a low income, that's money that's spent locally on local goods and services. It's spent on essentials, going to the grocery store, buying things you need. And that's helping to drive the local economy as well. And it's helping small businesses. It's helping to, uh, to drive economic growth. So I think if you're looking at it as a benefit uh, against the cost, uh, basic income does come out on top.
1: There's there's a theory that that's been in play for many many years now. Of course, there's the trickle down theory that if you give tax breaks to to people that make lots of money, uh, that that it will trickle down into the low income people because they'll they'll you know they'll hire more people and higher wages. Yada yada yada. We know it doesn't happen. No. Uh, and when governments have tried that in the past, they found after tracking it for a little while that what happens a lot of the time is those people hoard that money. Uh, they don't put it even back into their businesses. Yep. Uh, it goes to offshore accounts and all sorts of other things. Uh, but this is money that's going to be into the pockets of people that are going to go spend it. Yeah. It's not a tax break that they're going to get once a year, a tax credit. Uh, this is basically saying, here's your check. Now go to the grocery store. Exactly. Or here, here, this will help pay your rent, or this will pay your phone bill, so you can, you know, and and maybe as you say, some of them have actually gone back to school, so they can, you know, better their their situation.
3: Absolutely, and and we're seeing that. Uh, we've been in touch with a number of participants in this basic income pilot. And uh, to a person, they are certainly grateful for the opportunity, but they are also using the money wisely. Um, they are uh, they're investing it in their lives. They're investing do, do it you counsel in their futures. Them on that? Well, we're n- we're not really in a position to counsel, and that's one of the that's one of the drawbacks, I think, of a, of a basic income. Is it, it's kind of a uh, laissez-faire attitude. So the government provides this cash transfer, and then says, "Go um, uh, go use it as as you see fit." Um, so some people may indeed need need a little bit of assistance, particularly if you've been living in deep poverty for a long time. Um, so we're we're directing people to uh, to um, uh, credit There's, counselors. Yeah, there are and, agencies that will yeah, do that already. Yeah, and, and trustees if that if that's appropriate. Um, but there are great agencies out there in Hamilton Catholic Family Services and other other. Other organizations. That, by the way, that you, don't do have help to be, you don't
1: have to be Catholic. Or to, exactly. be to ask for their help. Exactly, uh, we've had them on the program before, and they do an incredible job of, of basically telling people: here is how you can manage your money better. Yep. and it's it's not done with any prejudice, or, or you know, they don't judge you. They just say: here is your situation okay, here's how we think you could do it a little bit better.
3: Yeah. And ironically, one of the things I'm finding about basic income participants is that they're so used to living in poverty that some of them aren't actually spending the money. Um, they're they're continuing to live in, in what I would consider substandard housing um, because until recently, until yesterday's announcement, they weren't sure if the basic income pilot w- was going to continue. So they didn't want to make big changes in their lives. And, um, and so we might now, now that you know, we can say it's kind of been depoliticized. It's not hopefully going to be a big issue in the provincial election with one party saying they're going to cancel it and another uh blaming, uh blaming for that. But um, I, I think now we'll be able to truly study the, the idea of basic income and really be able to see how, how it is impacting people's lives why aren't more people doing this? Ontario is actually one of the few
1: jurisdictions in the world. I know Finland, there's some Scandinavian countries that have tried this, but they've had a change in government in Finland uh, recently. It's a more right-wing government, and they basically said when the pilot's over, we're canceling it. That's all there is to it. Because yep. they just looked at the big price tag and said we don't want to do that anymore. Yep. Yeah, But they haven't seen the results yet.
3: They haven't. and And that's disappointing. and and that's that's what the challenge of creating new social policy is. You get an, a new government into power and they have a different idea. and And so you're never really able to follow um an experiment through to fruition. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. We're experimenting with people's lives and people's incomes, and and so we have to be very, very careful when, when we do that. Ensure that uh, people are are left with the dignity uh, they deserve to um, you know fulfill their dreams in their lives. Um, but there's all th- other great experiments happening um, not only here in North America, but but around the world. The mayor of Stockton, California, just launched his very own. Uh, basic income pilot project. And it's not as much as Ontario's. It's $500 per month for people. And I'm not exactly sure where he's finding the money in his budget, but Stockton's a relatively low-income community in California. And he saw basic income as a good opportunity to lift his citizens out of poverty and uh, and see how, uh, see how that could improve the local economy as well. We're going to have a number of people come to Hamilton uh, who are doing thinking on basic income. Next month, Hamilton, uh, along with McMaster University, is hosting the North American Basic Income Congress. So we'll have academics, uh, advocates, government representatives come to the city uh, to really uh, study this idea of basic income and share their research and experience. But we've also had a lot of international interest in, in in this pilot. So we've had the Wall Street Journal come to town. Uh, we've had Al Jazeera a couple of weeks ago. Uh, PBS Newshour came, and they're going to be running a feature in the next week or so on on the Ontario Basic Income pilot and interview a few of uh, Hamilton's participants. So it'll be interesting to see how the uh, reaction plays out in south of the border too.
1: Well, the reason that I was excited about this when the province made this commitment some time ago. It's because I was hopeful at that time that we were finally going to have a study done that we could actually use the criteria from to make a determination as to whether or not this is the best way to go. I know there are, there are other options, but uh, this one seemed to be the one the government said is probably going to work, but they want numbers to back it up. Now, yep. You mentioned years ago, of course, the one in Dolphin Manitoba, that they tried to do this, and uh, it just they never followed up on it. No. And, and sitting in a drawer someplace in City Hall in Winnipeg, I think, And nobody bothered to do anything about it. This will give people some hard and fast criteria to say, here's what, or maybe there were shortcomings, I'm sure, but let's determine what they are. But to do that, you got to finish the study.
3: Exactly. And we know this Ontario social assistance system, really, I think social assistance everywhere seems to be broken. And uh, people living on Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program are experiencing the deepest poverty in society. Um, most of the people we see going to food banks in Hamilton are actually on provincial social assistance programs. And and so we need a better way. Uh, we need to ensure that people have that solid foundation of financial support so they can... Uh, improve their lives and move out of poverty and and so far we're seeing that with this basic income pilot.
1: You mentioned about ODSP. I just actually got an email from Debbie, one of our listeners, as uh, she's listening to our conversation this morning asking about disabled and those unable to work. They they qualify for this.
3: They do and actually there is uh, an additional supplement for people with disabilities on the basic income pilot. Um, so if you are uh, receiving a basic income, don't have any other uh, income sources, uh, you'd be getting uh, about $1,400 a month. And, uh, if you have a disability, they would give you a $500, um, uh, additional supplement. Now enrollment for the basic income pilots now wrapped up. Yeah. Um, so everybody who's on the program is, is already on, and those will be the individuals who, who will be, um, studied for lack of a better word to to see how their lives are, are changing. Who else is... Uh,
1: I mentioned that the world is watching, and certainly the federal government is watching, but I know you were in London yesterday. I mean, other municipalities want to see what's happening here.
3: Yeah, exactly. Not
1: everybody got to ch- be a part of this pilot project.
3: No, I know, and I, I think there's a little bit of envy from other communities that, uh, that Hamilton was chosen, along with Thunder Bay and uh, Lindsay in eastern Ontario. Um, but certainly other communities are using this as an opportunity to talk to their own uh, city councils and the provincial government and say, look, um, we may not be part of the basic income pilot, but we want to reduce poverty for our population as well. So what are some creative things we can do? So in London, for example, they've brought in an affordable transit pass. They're doing some really interesting, innovative work um, in the community on, uh, with neighborhoods and, and, and uh, after school programs. So there's lots of different possibilities out there. Um, basic income may not be the be-all and end-all, um, but certainly when we look at opportunities around uh, improving access to child care, improving access to dental and, and prescription drugs, I, I think governments are now uh, engaged in this conversation about really the cost of poverty and what we can do to to remedy, um, you know, the significant portion of our population that just can't make ends meet. Well,
1: because I know that uh, invariably when you get into election campaigns, we, we get a lot of platitudes tossed at us, you know, we're going to create jobs. Well, Really, you know, uh that's easier said than done. And, and what you need to do is look after people that already have jobs. And as you mentioned, uh, well, 66% of the people that are on this are already working. Yeah. And, and, and I know I'm always going to get the pushback from some of our listeners that said, well, it's a choice. I had one guy last time
3: who said, poverty is a choice. Really? Are you kidding? <laughs> it's not a choice, and I'll I'll just relay the uh, the story of one basic income participant, uh, Tim Button, who joined me in uh, in London yesterday and talked about his his experience. Um, he, he's somebody who moved around from a few jobs over time, um, and and one job he was he was, he was doing some roofing, fell off the roof, and and ended up uh, you know not being able to work because of his injury and. It fell into poverty. And so for somebody like Tim, uh, basic income has been a real support mechanism and uh, has enabled him to, uh, you know, get some extra food and, and be able to uh, re-engage uh, in, in um, social activity, which he hasn't been able to do for years. And, I, you know, I've known Tim for a while and just seeing the transformation in his life has been really inspiring. Well, we all know
1: people like that, and 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 that's why when I see comments like the one I just alluded to, they, I figure people you just don't get the picture. Because yeah. uh, I, I, I I know a gentleman who years ago that was in a very similar situation had a great paying job, making all kinds of money, had an accident, was in an accident, involved in an accident, was injured, uh, lost his job, uh, lost his family. I mean, he got ended up his wife left him; they got divorced. Uh, fell into depression, uh, all sorts of other things going on, and ruined his life. And it, it can happen to anybody. I mean, you're you're one incident away
3: from being in that same situation. Exactly, and there there are it's not a choice. No, there's uh, there's eighty thousand people who experience poverty in this city, and there's eighty thousand different stories. And um, I, I, th- I think you know we need to break down some of those ugly stereotypes about poverty. Nobody wants to experience poverty. Um, people you know, want to be part of the solution. They want to participate. They want to uh, contribute to society. If basic income can be a bit of a foundation to do that for people, then I say more power to them, and let's uh, let's get on with it.
1: Well, I know that uh, the liberals, uh, the, the Kathleen Wynne liberals, have obviously committed. It's their project. Andrea Horvath has said that if she becomes premier, uh, they will continue with the project. I- I'd like to get a little more clarity from the, the, the PCs at this stage. We have a spokesperson uh, who's nameless, and I- I'd like to actually get Doug Ford's uh, take on this and see where this is going. Because I mean, that would—I don't know if you carve anything in stone during an election campaign, but I think it would probably assuage a lot of the concerns people have.
3: I—I I, I would, you know, I'd love to hear that too. And again, I think you know, this basic income isn't uh, left or right issue. I think it's uh, it's something that we've seen people on all sides of the political spectrum supporting um, and uh, so there's a conservative, former conservative senator Hugh Siegel has been one of the biggest proponents of basic income. He was one of the architects of he this. Is. Yeah, and he had a great article in in McLean's uh, last week, so I'd, I'd encourage our uh, listeners to to pick up a copy and, and read that. Andrew Coyne, um, you know, a columnist who I, I don't think anybody would consider too left, uh, wrote a very... He's Oh, he's a
1: very, he's a conservative guy. Yeah. Great, and a great writer. He
3: is. And, uh, he wrote a very interesting piece in the national post last week about, uh, about the cost of a basic income. And, uh, I'd encourage readers to read that as well. Um, so again, this isn't a conservative versus, um, uh, liberal issue. It's, it's not a left or right issue. I think, um, you know, this is an opportunity to look at, uh, developing an important social policy for the 21st century.
1: Tom Cooper, uh, thanks as always. Great to see you in here again.
3: Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show,
1: weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900 CHML.
1: There's a, a concern going on here in Hamilton, as I'm sure there is in every other city here in Ontario, and probably right across the country, about uh, marijuana dispensaries. Now, we've talked with uh, the, the owners of a few of them uh, from time to time here on the program, uh, and they tell us uh, what their their plight is, that, yeah, it's going to be legalized, and, you know, they're not really supposed to be there, but... It's educational, et cetera, et cetera. So you, I wanted you to hear their stories, and you did. But the other side of this is, uh, the, the first and foremost, of course, is these things aren't yet legal. I mean, the, we're anticipating it's probably going to be happening sometime this summer, but it hasn't happened yet. And Hamilton Police Services are overwhelmed now trying to shut down some of these operations. And I know city councillors are getting a lot of concern calls from their residents saying, hey, you know what, one of these things just popped up in my neighbourhood. And I'm hearing stories that they're not all medical marijuana facilities, that a lot of these are being set up as recreational. But uh, And again, this is trying to like herd cats, I guess, to try to get a hold of them. Uh, Chad Collins uh, is uh, the counselor for Ward 5 out in the east end of the city, uh, also fielding an awful lot of these calls and, uh, and may have a solution for it. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Chad. How are you today? I'm doing well, Bill. These things are, uh, excuse the bad uh, pun here, but they're growing like weeds around the city, aren't they? <laughs> they are. Yes, they are.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think at last count we're close to 50 operations uh, in the city from one neighborhood uh, to the next.
1: Now, now I want to contrast that just so our listeners understand. When this is finally legalized, what I'm hearing, and I'm sure you have as well, Chad, is the province has suggested that Hamilton might have two or maybe four of these, as opposed to the 40 or 50 that may be here now.
2: That's right. The provincial government's still formulating their legislation surrounding the operation of their own government stores, for example, they're focusing their attention on radial separation requirements that mm. take into consideration proximity to sensitive land uses such as schools and daycares and 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 um, you know buildings of that nature. They're slowly opening locations across the province, and uh, as you noted, less than a handful of loca- locations will be located originally in Hamilton once they once they open. And I think their plan is to over the first two or three years, then start to open up a, a few more stores here and there. And they'll have strict controls surrounding the composition of the drug. Regulations that, um, as I understand it, mirror um, you know some of the regulations that they have with cigarettes in terms of you know what uh, chemical composition can be included in what they sell. And um, contrast that with the current scenario that we have, and we're now dealing with. And, and as we said, there's nearly 50 locations and counting across the city. None of these uh, factors have been taken into consideration with the drug dealers and or landlords that are facilitating the illegal sale of drugs out of their buildings. Many of them are a hop, skip and a jump away from schools and daycares and other sensitive land uses. Many of them are, are saturating our neighbourhoods. So there's no discussion or uh, opportunity to talk about, you know, how many is too much for a certain area of the city in terms of business districts and or even residential neighbourhoods. And, um, and of course, you know, there, there's no consideration um, taken into account by these illegal operators uh, about, you know, how close they are to a school or, or anything along those lines. So in the process, the, the the drug dealers and landlords are essentially thumbing their nose at authorities. Um, they're thumbing their nose at uh, the community, and certainly, in, and most importantly, I think they're thumbing the, the their nose at the laws of the province
1: and the country. I, I, invariably, this is going to have to be something that the province is going to have to deal with. Have you talked to them about this and, and about the plight? Now, as I said at the top, I'm sure you guys aren't alone here.
2: No, we're not alone, and all municipalities in Ontario, especially large, large urban centers like Hamilton, are are facing this this situation. And um, and the province has been quite clear that uh, through through the spring and uh, over the last couple of months, they've been contemplating legislation that would allow um, would increase the fines to not just those people who are illegally selling the drugs, but excuse me, but to also to landlords as well. Uh, our dilemma is that. I mean, Bill, you've covered all kinds of legislation at uh, the provincial and federal level. Sometimes it takes months, if not years, to get this through mm-hmm. and add into the mix the um, you know the pending provincial election. And there's some question in terms of when that legislation would be made available to law enforcement authorities as well as municipalities.
1: Well, so, you know, I mean, the so. sand, but just on that point, though, you know, the sand's running out of the hourglass right now. Uh, the writ comes down in about, what, 10 days, something like that? Mm-hmm. And, and right. there'll be no legislation after that.
2: That's right, and so we're you know municipalities and and uh, residents and certainly uh, police services across the province then are left to grapple with this growing situation and and forced to utilize the the existing laws of the land that would help us address such a situation. So, the 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 question I raised the other day at committee was whether or not the proceeds of crime legislation that currently exists, and you might recall the sandbar situation Mm -hmm. where. The Attorney General's Office through the province confiscated that property because there was a um, you know there was a uh, there was proof that the owner and operator of that building was uh, benefiting from the proceeds of crime uh, with that property, and so that same legislation still exists today. Uh, since two thousand and three, I think the province has confiscated fifty million dollars worth of property um, under that legislation, and uh, and I think if we you know we look at the current situation across the community. Uh, landlords are a part of this problem they are knowingly opening their doors and renting out spaces to these drug dealers who are selling their products illegally Um, police have done their best in terms of trying to shut them down but as you've covered the situation bill as soon as those arrests are made and those charges are laid um, they're open within a couple of days once they restock their shelves and we're through this cat and mouse game all over again and and that's costing you know our our local ratepayers and residents of our community a lot of money it's You know, we're probably into the hundreds of thousands of dollars just to deal with the enforcement aspect. And and we're spending a lot of time and resources with Hamilton Police Service staff that should be really allocated to other areas of our city. Traffic safety, um, you know, proactive community policing, all those things um, should take precedent over this. And unfortunately, their attention and the resources have been diverted to this growing problem.
1: What about the landlords? Let's talk a little bit about that, Chad, Mm -hmm. because I know that's the focus of of what you were talking about at the committee meeting the other day. Uh, there's two pronged uh, approach here. I mean, first of all, you've got people that live in the city that that maybe own some of these properties, so they're landlords. Yep. Maybe you can reach out to them. And you've got the absentee landlords. So let's deal with those separately. First of all, those that you can contact that you know, I, I have have they given any excuse uh, as to as to why they're doing this? I mean, uh, is is it because they figure well it's going to be legal in a few months anyway? Or are they just looking for uh, somebody, anybody to rent their property? What's going on here?
2: Yeah, I think you've summarized it quite well there with those last two sentences. They're turning a blind eye to it. They're making a quick buck off of it. Um, they're reading the news and listening to your show, and they're getting information from you know some of the major newspapers across the nation. They know it's illegal. So it, um, you know there are, the fact that they're profiting from this and hiding in the shadows, I think, is problematic. And there should be some kind of a public discussion to uh, expose uh, who these business owners are and landlords are. Um, You know, I I believe that uh, it's standard operating procedure for the police once they undertake these raids, that they do contact the owner. I mean, I've dealt with drug houses in my own area, and, you know, when these raids take place, they make their best attempts to contact the owner of the property to make them aware of the criminal activity that's uh, ongoing in their premises. And, of course, most standard commercial and residential leases have clauses in it that protect the landlord from illegal activities. You know, there are clauses that in most cases state that you know, if the landlord finds out there's illegal activities, then they reserve the right certainly to to uh, invalidate the lease. And and of and so there's also, um, you know, avenues through the landlord tenant board to, to deal with these situations where you have an uncooperative tenant. So there are all kinds of um, avenues for landlords to take. And I'm not aware of any situation of the 50 so far, and there are dozens have been raided and dozens of charges have been laid. I'm not aware of one landlord that has evicted um, their tenant as a result of the illegal activity. And so, they're profiting from it. They are, um, you know, they're they're laughing all the way to the bank at the expense of the community, and and all the while, our Hamilton police service staff and and residential neighborhoods and business districts are struggling to to cope and deal with the situation.
1: But I just based on what you've said there, and the excuse or the reasoning, I guess, that they've given you for for doing this. Seems to be misplaced because we already know from what the premier, what the government has mm-hmm. told us, is that when this does become a reality and when this stuff is legalized, uh, these places are still going to be illegal because the government's going to control the, the dispensaries.
2: Correct. And so, you know, the information's out there and it's been out there for quite some time. I mean, we've been dealing with this situation for years and I think we see those numbers increase. You know, at one point in time we were talking about 20 establishments, then it was 30, and as the months passed, now we're up to 50. By the time the new legislation comes into effect i i wouldn't be surprised you know if we're talking about 60 or 70 establishments across the community and i've talked to um, one um, landowner who sold their property on queenston road uh, to somebody from toronto that owner immediately secured one of the vacant units with a uh, marijuana dispensary and their comments to the gentleman who sold the property to them was that they've paid you know a year in advance Um, There's no issue in terms of uh, how much they're paying. In fact, they're paying over market rent. And so it's a very lucrative business, as you can imagine. And uh, people are making a lot of money and they're making money at the expense of people who live in in our neighborhoods. And so that's why I think the Civil Remedies Act that I referenced earlier with the sandbar bill, uh, I think there's opportunities there. Um, I reread the legislation a couple of days ago and I I actually went to the, the announcement that was made by the then Attorney General Michael Bryant Ah, uh, when that announcement was made that uh, they were confiscating and seizing the sandbar, and eventually they donated that back to the city and and those resources are would be used then to offset the cost of having to deal with all the criminal activity. And when I look at um, the, the government's uh, message that they sent out at the time, you know they talked about um, the fact that the the legislation acts to prevent people from keeping assets acquired through unlaw unlawful activity, to prevent assets and property from being used to engage in further unlawful activities and to compensate victims. And so there are a lot of similarities here in terms of how that legislation was uh, applied to the sandbar. And in my mind, um, there should be an open question publicly about whether or not we should be looking at using the same provincial legislation that's available to municipalities and law enforcement agencies to confiscate properties where landlords knowingly allow their properties to be used uh, for any illegal activity or activities in this case.
1: And that's you know that's a long list of things that have happened over the years. It's you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about marijuana dispensaries right now, but there have been other situations uh, where the, that nefarious activity has gone on in some of these properties. What about the absentee yep. landlords? How do you deal with that? But a lot of the time, these are numbered companies, and you don't even know who the owner is.
2: Yeah, and that's that's a that's a huge problem. And so there's you know this whole. I mean, I, I don't expect anything to come from uh, reaching out to landlords. Uh, they're making a quick buck. I, I think there needs to be some public pressure. On certainly the local landlords that we're aware of, who and oftentimes probably own other properties, and they live amongst us in our community. I think we should there should be a public discussion about who these people are, and and having some kind of debate or discussion at committee or even through the media about um, you know how do they rationalize opening these businesses? The the absentee uh, landlords are a different story. It's very difficult, as you mentioned, Bill, when they're numbered companies. There are certainly ways that we can try to find out who owns them. Um, and, and certainly the police have greater powers than the municipality does in that regard. And so I, I, I think there should be even the start of the conversation of, of talking about confiscating properties, and of course those proceeds should go back to law enforcement agencies. They should be donated to, and it's just my own personal opinion, they should be donated to programs that help people with addictions and those types of things. And so um, this isn't about uh, you know grabbing these properties and trying to make a profit off them. It's about trying to find uh, tools and resources within the existing legislation to help us close what we all know are illegal operations. And I listened with interest on your show with some of those who've been on to say, you know, they're providing a service to the community. They are, um, you know, it's within the laws in terms of the medicinal marijuana. Obviously, that's not the case because the police have raided more than 20 of them now. They've laid charges, I think, with every single raid. And, um, and, and those, those charges are now making their way through the court system. Uh, but i you know i would um i would hesitate to guess that with all of the resources they put into it that the police are wrong on one or more of those counts that just
1: well just, and that's what clouds the issue here because yep. they they're hanging their hat on that idea that there is a legitimate industry uh, mm-hmm. for medical marijuana and has been there for quite some time and and you know and i know uh, mm-hmm. that it that it is a, a prescribed and, and actually acknowledged uh, way of, of of pain medication uh, for many people that are living with chronic illnesses and so yep. and they're saying well that's what we're giving well uh, so I guess what we're supposed to believe is that everybody who walks in there and purchases mm-hmm. something has that letter for medical marijuana I, I I find that a little hard to believe and hard. To, uh, they, that's a bit of a stretch as far as I'm concerned but and and the police are telling us a totally different story.
2: Absolutely that's right and and uh you know, I know that the goal, and we've heard this at a committee when they attended as delegations. We've seen it in the media where they've talked about the Vancouver and British Columbia model. They're hoping that, um, you know, to break the government monopoly on this, as is the case in British Columbia. They're hoping that municipalities will eventually license them to uh, to sell their 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 drugs uh, uh, that are now illegal. They're hoping that, that there'll be a licensed industry after the the province. Uh, sets up their own shops, and and I know that uh, I can't speak for other municipalities, but I know that around the council chamber, there really is no desire to uh, to adopt that model. Um, we know that we're going to have growing pains, even with the government's uh, own system. Um, you know, we're we're talking Bill now about things that you know we we probably weren't even discussing a year ago in terms of the odor issues that we're going to deal with in multi residential units. Um, what are the rights of tenants who live, uh, the, for an example, in in private or social housing? Um, You know, there'll be all kinds of issues, small ones, but issues that mean a lot to people that we'll have to grapple with through the first couple of years of this legislation. It'll take certainly a lot to get used to from a cultural perspective as well. So all of those things are on the horizon, and it certainly doesn't help the situation that we're dealing with these illegal drug dealers who have found ways and means to get around the law and, uh, and are, are making a quick buck uh, with landlords at the expense of the community.
1: The other element to this is, as we've talked about a couple of times now in the conversation, I mean, there is a provincial election imminent. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything from any of the party leaders, uh, the, the Premier or uh, Andrew Horvath or Doug Ford, that they're going to change this, that they're going to open the market up and just let anybody who wants to apply for a license. So that even if that's what their long-term goal is, it's not going to happen anytime soon, if it's going to happen at all. That's
2: right. and and you know, I think what we're pressing for, we want to ensure that all the parties are aware that it's a priority that they give the resources to the police to make sure that um you know they're not uh, going through this cat and mouse game that we've experienced for the the last uh, you know sixteen or eighteen months. The legislation we have right now just doesn't work. As quick as we close them down or the police close them down, they're open within a day or two. so it it that really is a, is a is a sign that the legislation that we're they're currently using using, um, is is failing. It, it's failed the community, it's, and it's uh, it, it just isn't working. So, we we need all three political parties, and whoever the government might be, whether it's a minority or majority situation, we need to ensure that the new laws that apply to these drug dealers and landlords who are aiding and abetting them, we need to make sure that those laws are are severe, that the costs are high, and that they start to contemplate whether or not it's worth it in light of the charges and maybe even the legislation associated with the, the, uh, the crimes and the penalties, um, we, we need them to start second-guessing whether or not this is a business they want to be in. Right now, um, th- those fines are, are paltry. They are a small cost of doing business. And the fact that these organiz- these um, yeah, drug dealers keep opening more uh, establishments across the city I think, tells us that uh, we need better legislation and we need more severe and stiff penalties.
1: Chad Collins, Counselor for Ward 5. Chad, thanks as always. We'll stay in touch and see how this uh, develops. Thanks, Bill.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.